Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Steve Kravick. We have an awesome, awesome, awesome conversation about all sorts of things that get nice and old school, and Steve has really cool and passionate views about a lot of things in recording. I think that we get into some things that are not often said on this podcast, so I'm really excited to share this one with you. If you're not familiar with Steve, he's worked with Blink-182, Less Than Jake, MXPX, Pulley, Tsunami Bomb, Seven Seconds, and a whole ton more, and he has a lot of cool thoughts on that to share. So after this episode, get to know him, head on over to his Noise Careers profile, read his bio, get to know his discography, listen to his Spotify playlist, and check this episode out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what are you using to record your voice today? I am actually using a very utilitarian uh, AKG 414. Nice. Uh, I have a pair that I purchased about... Ooh, about 25 years ago. Oh, wow. So you so, so you got some good ones. I have good ones, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's sort of funny. Like, you look in catalogs today at what they're making and what they call a 414, and it, it doesn't even look like a microphone. Yes. It looks like a <laughs> toy or something. I'm not <laughs> Spaceship. <laughs> a sex toy. <laughs> well, it's also funny because it's such a classic mic that's bit, bit on so many things that it's really fallen out of favor because it seems like it's just like... It was always middle of the road sexy and not this like mic that you're really striving for, like a 47 or something. And now it right. seems like it just like people for, seem to forget about like that. This is a great mic and can record almost every source really well. Pretty much. You know, I like them in a lot of things. They're not good for everybody's vocal, mm -hmm. but for certain vocals, they suit well mm -hmm. because there's a little bit of air in it, both at the top and the bottom gets breathy. But um, I like them uh, for stereo room. I like them for overheads. You just have to watch your proximity. Sometimes mm -hmm. the big diaphragms can phase a little bit if they're too close to the cymbals. But I like them for stereo room a lot. That's usually where you'll find them. And I uh, often am doing like a, a blend between a condenser and, and dynamic when I'm tracking guitar. And uh -huh. uh, 414 ends up on the cabinets a lot of the time. So Sa they're, same. They're, 
they definitely end up, uh, you know, with, with plenty of, uh, of use on my sessions, but I, I like also using them because, for, because it's not a 67 or a 47 mm-hmm. and I don't have to worry about somebody dropping it or <laughs> yes. hitting it or, you know, one of those things. And then you're calling your insurance company going, I have a problem. <laughs> hey, well, hey, listen, uh, you having an insurance company is uh, better, than, better than a lot of people I talk to. So, well, actually, you know what? Everybody that's got a home operation at this mm. point should have something in place. I agree. And it doesn't cost, have to cost a lot of money. I have a premium that covers everything in my studio as long as it's in the studio. And I pay about 400, 450 a year for it. And that's really um, affordable. It's really affordable. The deductible is minimum and it covers everything I have, which is like over a hundred K's worth of stuff. Wow. I'm using a company. I'll do a shameless plug. I'm using this company called Anderson out of Florida and they do a real, they do a real good job and they know what they're doing. So if people are looking for, for insurance and to get covered and to protect themselves, I would definitely suggest that. Uh, Basically all you have to do is turn in a a spreadsheet to them with all of your, um, you know, an equipment list and values and, you know, they'll ask for photographs and stuff like that is sure. support but definitely look into it kids <laughs> yeah the age of instagram who doesn't have photos of all their equipment well that, that, well that's it right yeah. you know it sh- you you should have that stuff and with uh the age of um social media mm-hmm. and uh interconnection people tend to know where you are and where uh-huh. you're located <laughs> It's and, true. Uh, I, I, you don't want a truck driving up to your studio when you're when you've posted you've gone to Baja for vacation. You know. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it can get a little little weird. Yeah. Okay. That's so it. let's talk, let's talk about you though, instead sure. of p- plugging uh, away somebody else. <laughs> Tell me about your background of music. I've been involved in music in one way or another uh, since I was probably about thirteen or fourteen years old when I picked up drums as my first instrument. Mm-hmm. And, you know, through that, after kind of tapping around in my parents' basement uh, for a little bit, I managed to uh, find some like-minded people uh, in my high school that wanted to form a punk rock band. And so, you know, that's what we did. Um, There was four of us. We used to practice in my parents' basement. And, of course, we had no idea what we were doing. We would, like, you know, listen to Pistols records and Clash Mm. records. and Nice try and figure out like, Oh, like how are they making those noises or how does this work? Mm. Uh, sort of thing. And of course we're all entirely clueless. And that was sort of my first, uh, foray into, into music. I loved it from, Mm. from immediately. Like there was something about the energy and also something about the camaraderie of having, you know, three or four other people around that were like-minded and, you know, supported things that you liked, uh, you know, or were into things or music that you liked. And it kind of opened up a whole world for, for me at, at that age, you know, and kind of thought, well, this is maybe something that I could, you know, be involved in or, you know, interested in as time goes on. So that was the initial catalyst into getting involved in music. And uh, as we kind of grew that, you know, little garage band over the period of a year or two, we set ourselves with the goal of, oh, we have to get to a studio somewhere and record some of this stuff. And I had never been in a studio before and didn't really know what went on there. So, you know, we'd 
went around to a couple of studios in town, took a look, finally settled on one and ended up going there. And I think we recorded like eight songs. I would have been probably about 16 years old at this point. And, you know, during the first portion of the session, I sort of was focused on getting my drums taken care of. And once that was done, I spent most of the time in the control room, just kind of watching and listening to everything that was going on. And I started realizing, oh, well, wait a minute, there's all this other stuff that's, that's happening, that's making this process, you know, reality. And I hadn't really considered that before, you know, like when I was, when I was like five or six years old, I thought that the bands like appeared on radio stations live, like I thought that they went to one sta- station in town and played their song and then they went to another radio station across town and played their song. And it wasn't until I like di- one day that I went between dials on the radio and the same song was playing on both stations that I listened to that I realized, oh no, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's always so funny some of the assumptions people make. And, we, and now when we get older, we laugh when kids come to right? us with these assumptions. But usually we had re- way more ridiculous ones because of what technology was. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, I grew up with rotary phones and AM radio, right? So for, for me, uh, that was, a, like a, a big enlightenment, right? That's like, oh no, they're not playing live. Oh, they're re- this is recorded, and oh, like the records mom and dad have, you know. And I mean, my folks were never too hip to recorded music. You know, they were kids of the '30s and the '40s, so you know they had records around like Engelbert Humperdinck and uh, you know Tony Bennett and mm-hmm. Johnny Mathis and stuff like that. I mean, there wasn't a Beatles record in our house. Wow. You know, growing up, there was no counterculture. There was no nothing of that sort, you know, I'd have to go to my cousins, uh, you know, to, to hear, you know, I guess what we'd call, you know, real records are rock and roll, you know? So I grew up in a very un, unrock household. Maybe that's part of the reason too. Like I, <laughs> I, I ended up in this business, you know? I think, I think it usually is a divergent stream. It's either you were really nurtured into it or you were, had no nurturing. So you rebelled. I yeah, I had a little bit of nurturing. Like my mm. mother pushed me into, you know, piano when I was younger mm. and my hands were really small and I was kind of very slight as a child. So it physically was really tough for me and I got very frustrated with it. And then somebody suggested, oh, you know, I was over at a friend's house and he had a drum kit and he was like, oh, we'll try and beat on these and see what happened. Mm. And I was like, oh, immediately, like everything made more sense to me, I guess, maybe just because of the simplicity of it or whatever. But mm-hmm. I kind of found that easier to grab onto, you know? Gotcha. And so that ended, yeah, that was my, you know, that was my first instrument. It's still, I still, you know, play drums to, to this day. And I do perform on recordings that Mm. I do from time to time. If I'm, if I'm asked, I have some clients that ask me to play on their records. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also, uh, over the years, you know, taught myself guitar and taught myself bass and I sing, uh, I've ended up doing, you know, you know, backing vocals on, on a, a lot of records that I've done and lots of percussion too. Like all sorts of things get left to the producer at the end, you yes. know, it's like, it's like, Oh, well guy, uh, we got to go play these shows and I know the record's not really done, but, uh, you're the producer. So, uh, wrap that up and take care of it. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, I, I heard a good joke recently is a uh, musician turns to the producer and says, so when do we do percussion? And, uh, the producer says, usually when you've been gone for about two weeks and I'm finishing the mixes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
exactly. It's kind of funny, actually. I always find that that's a good time to do it mm-hmm. as the mixes go up because then you find where the holes are mm-hmm. and where you need. You've got everything in place now and you know where your mutes are and you kind of go, oh, well, we need some ear candy here or something has to happen yep. here. And it, I always try and leave a mic set up somewhere and one pre open somewhere so that we can slap a little tambourine on it or mm-hmm. some maracas or something. It always takes something, you know, and hand toys, hand toys are, are really, really important at mm-hmm. driving recorded pop music. Totally. And I sometimes think that we don't, folks don't understand how important those little ear candy elements are. Yeah, but, it, uh, it is funny too because you know it goes both ways. It's like it either drives or it's like, why did you annoy me with that thing that's totally <laughs> there? Because the drummer just as bored as fuck because he's been sitting around for two weeks doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is too is like in a lot of the cases, I'll find that drummers come and they're they're very insistent that they want to do percussion. Yes, and you know, okay, here you go, knock it out, and invariably guys that play drums and don't focus on percussion just aren't very good at doing it. Mm-hmm. And there are certain tricks to doing it. And placement is a huge one. Oh yeah. I find that drummers tend to want to be on top of the beat that they've played as opposed to placing slightly behind. So things start getting in each other's ways that causes problems. Of course, now these days, right. People just sort of nudge that back and forth in mm-hmm. the digital world. But back in the day, you had to come up with other solutions for yep. people that would rush. You know, what the I've had to deal with that on quite a lot of recordings where you're recording onto a, you know, a 24 track machine and you've got a guy that just simply plays on top all the time, you know, a guitarist or a bass player and you cannot get the placement to sit right. And so in a lot of cases when I'd run into that, basically the the solution for that is to take your stereo tape just take a stereo bus of your 24 track mm-hmm. and run, run it through a stereo digital delay mm, yeah. uh, not knock it back six or seven milliseconds and then have the guy play to that in real time and of course when you play it back his performance is now six or seven milliseconds moved back on mm-hmm. the tape and all of a sudden you bring it up and you go whoa your placement sounds amazing <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I were i only ever ever uh did the did the opposite one where uh actually delaying them then in the mix because they were uh, so up yeah, on yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting <coughs> interesting reverse engineering of well, that well that way one. you don't have to put it through anything you know on the on yeah. on the way uh, on the way out you've sort of set it in yeah. you've sort of set it in stone i find it always takes up when you're working that way although i haven't done that for a while you just have to find how many milliseconds each particular individual needs to be kicked back you know some people it's just a couple Mm -hmm. milliseconds some people it's like oh seven or eight wow (laughs) yeah yeah you know too much caffeine that day yeah right exactly you (laughs) know uh, sessions being caffeine caffeine driven generally you know it's it's not surprising so so let's go backwards a little bit tell me more about your transition into producing and how you sure definitely like i said growing up playing in a band and being on that end of things opened the window up so i could see what it was i had a little experience also as a teenager getting into broadcast studios because when i was a kid i had some interest in uh being a disc jockey or an on-air personality or something like that in radio. Um, so I'd been in a few broadcast studios at that point as well. And I, for some reason, it just started to capture my imagination. Uh, later on, when I got into university and was working in college radio, um, you know, I discovered that the, the college radio station had an eight-track production studio 
in it. And, uh, you know, they weren't doing a lot of recorded music, but what they were doing was jingles, creating advertisement for on-air, you know, customers, paying customers. And so I started doing a few of those little spots. And the more I did it, the more I realized, oh, I really enjoy this work. This is something that, that interests me. And at that time, though, I really didn't have the studio uh, education, you know, knowledge or background to simply step into starting to make records. So what I did do at that time was I started spending a lot of time working on live sound. And mm-hmm. that ended up partnering me with bands, learning how to mix monitors, learning how to mix house, learning how to put apart to how to put together and tear apart a PA system and how it worked. And, you know, what's a crossover? Uh, what's a, what's a snake, you know, what's a 10 DB pad, you know, simple concrete things. And the live stuff really helped a lot as far as starting to understand signal flow and how buses worked and insertion worked and how, you know, outboard worked and dynamics and signal processing. And the other thing that was really cool about having live experience was that if you figured out that if stuff didn't work, there was going to be no show. So you had to figure out pretty quickly how things worked or why they worked. You know, I had a mentor that kind of walked me through a lot of that stuff and helped, but I also made a lot of discoveries myself through trial and error. And once I became a little bit more comfortable with routing and processing of signal, I started bringing the odd band into the production studio at the university where I was studying and just trying some basic fundamental eight track recordings, you know, and for the most part, they didn't come off as disasters. They came off as, you know, well, I can hear all the instruments and things sound fairly balanced and fairly clear. Um, So I'm probably on the right track. And that sort of, you know, fueled the inspiration. And from there, I was able to translate that into a few early production jobs where I was actually working as a producer with an engineer working under me. And that kind of cemented it. You know, after I'd had a couple of records out, you know, that that sounded okay and were getting some recognition and getting some reviews, it just seemed like, well, this is the way I wanted to go. And I had mm-hmm. thought about playing professionally, but it always seemed like that was more of a young person's game and that a career in production would be something that would have more longevity and possibly be, you know, you'd be compensated better for that work. Now, of course, flash forward to now where everybody has a laptop, everybody's a producer, you know, and there is no long longevity and artists young and old are on the stage spreading their music everywhere so it's actually sort of completely worked out the opposite as as i had as as i had planned with youthful exuberance <laughs> yes well make a plan yeah and stick to it that's what you get for and making a plan and stick to it right um, yeah. it, it is what it is but the that that was sort of my path into the industry And uh, I sort of began, you know, I grew up in Canada and started up Mm. there working with bands up there. And I sort of got to the point where, well, I had sort of done everything I I could. And I had built my own studio Mm. at that point. 
I had learned to become a, a recording engineer as opposed to just a producer. I had a rounded skill set, you know, and I'd been running my studio as its own business. So I felt that I was ready to transition. And that's when I decided to move to Los Angeles and mm. got involved uh, with uh, Brett Gurowitz and Donald Cameron at West Beach Recorders. Mm-hmm. Ah, I did not realize that was your background. I love some of those records, uh, West Beach. That's, uh, those are some classic Yeah, for records. sure. And the thing that's interesting about that studio in that era is actually that West Beach had, I believe, three different locations over mm-hmm. the, I remember always seeing different yeah, towns over and being that like, what's time. up with that? Is this just misprints? That's so yeah. funny. This is like w- what I was doing with my life in the late 90s is reading those ridiculous uh, things. Yeah, they, initially it had a, a location that was sort of down by uh, Venice or Mar Vista, which is sort of towards the beach mm-hmm. a little bit. And mm-hmm. then they had a, a location in Hollywood that was in a house and I think it was, I'm trying to remember the name of the street. It's like Vista Del Mar or something like that uh, in Hollywood. And so they had that in the studio in a house uh, for a number mm. of years until they decided, okay, we're taking this professional and Epitaph had really started to burgeon as a label at that time. So I think that mm. they felt that, okay, you know, it's time to make the studio a real thing you know, with a real business address. And they took, uh, uh, rented a property on Hollywood Boulevard at Gower. And that's, was the sort of like the formal and final location of West Beach recorders. Mm. And that studio was located in a room that had initially be called, been called producers one and two. It was two recording Mm. studios there. And uh, in two, the back room, which was West Beach, all of the rumors, all of the overdubs for Fleetwood Mac's rumors were done there. Pink Floyd did a bunch of overdubs for the wall there. There's there's this crazy, crazy crazy amount of recording that happened there historically. The building had been owned by Liberace at one point, (laughs) you know? I mean, it was just crazy, right? That, you know, you go to work at this place every day and sort of think about, you know, things that had happened in the past. But yeah, they, they managed to keep a cohesive sound coming from that studio, even though it was located in three different places over the years. But that's a testament to, to, to Brett and to Donald, who, you know, engineered the majority of those records themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those guys were, you know, well, there was some, you know, recording education background there. Most of the the records that those guys were making, I think that they were just sort of making on their own, you know, their own way, mm-hmm. you know, they knew the basics, but they, they had their own sound. Can you confirm that? I, I remember there was this thing, we talked about this for years, is that they, they used to suspend the guitar cabs so that they wouldn't touch the floor and they like hung them from wires or something. I've, you, you know what? I've heard those stories. I've never seen... Mm-hmm anybody do that on a session honestly i don't know why they would (laughs) well i mean decoupling the amp from a floor is a different sound than an amp on a floor for sure but like you know that's a little extreme i just put it on a metro shelf and right um, real it's it's the same as anything else i've ever heard i sort of find like when you stick a microphone at you know in front of a speaker cabinet at 110 db 
it's not really mm-hmm. hearing whether it's on the floor or not. <laughs> but well, hey, uh, there there is a difference in the base response. I mean, uh, uh, to an right, extent. yeah, probably stuff that I would filter out later. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's actually now that's a great point. But hey, everybody's got everybody's got their way, right? And I have heard I have yep. heard that story, and I and there may be some truth to it, but I never saw anybody doing it while I was there. So just the perfect type of story for a bunch of kids to obsess over why they're not going to get a guitar tone right when really it's 10 other. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) (laughs) One good reason to be actually one good reason to do that would be to pitch the tone from the cabinet up into the room a little bit more. If you were looking for Mm -hmm. a a more open room sound, I definitely think you could, you know, help achieve that. That to me makes perfect sense. You know, so, but like I said, each, each to his own, everybody's got, you know, a, a, a method, yeah. right? But uh, those, you know, working at West Beach was a, a big eye opener. And it was a great, when I arrived there in 94, everything was just taking off. You know, the Rancid, their second record was just hitting. The Offspring were just starting to blow up. No effects were coming in to start recording Punk and Drublick. There was just so much going on at that era in that place. So when I arrived on the scene there, it was sort of perfect timing, you know, and it took me a while to kind of get into the swing and get people to know who I was. But I was able to work there for, you know, four to five years and build my own client base and then subsequently, you know, move on as an independent producer you know, but my first, you know, break in the States was, you know, through Brett and Don at, uh, at West Beach. And, uh, I couldn't have, I couldn't have asked for, you know, better timing or more supportive people to work with. That's awesome. So you now have your own studio. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. About a little less than three years ago, I moved out of sort of the downtown or Hollywood area of LA and, um, I decided I wanted to change of scenery and I started looking up in the mountains a little bit north of LA for something like sort of like a live workspace mm-hmm. you know and so I was poking around and one of the first places I I looked at became you know my current studio uh, which I call Hell's Half Acre <laughs> and f- folks uh, can find uh, Hell's Half Acre Hell's Half Acre Studio on Facebook if they want to drop by and say hello. Basically what it was, was I rented a, a three-bedroom house that sits on two and a half acres and it has no direct neighbors. And originally the home had a one-car garage in it, which I converted into a control room and rolled all my gear into. Mm. And it works perfectly (laughs) it's absolutely perfectly it sounds great i've done a little treatment to the control room but it sounds great and the main room of the house i used to track to use to track drums in and it's sort of got a vaulted ceiling which just makes the drums explode so i totally lucked out i've been up here going on you know two and a half years now and and it's working it's working really really well my clients that work with me here simply love the tones that we're getting out of the place. They love the drum sounds. And the, the idea that rent is cheap mm. uh, is, was a huge, a huge thing. 
is rent in cities is getting priced out of control. We'll see more and more of this, right? Yep. Like, you know, a lot of the major studios closed when uh, the digital revolution happened. And we're going to see the same thing happening as, you know, rents jump from two, three, four thousand $4,000 a month for commercial space in cities. People are going to do most of their work from their home or their own garage, or they're going to move out a little bit as I have done. You know, what I tried to do to keep it accessible was I'm not too far away. I'm one hour from, from, from Hollywood, which makes it easy for people to get here. And the other thing that I did was I tried to create a theme around it. That's inviting, you know, and part of that theme is the getaway of coming out of the city and coming up here and working, you know, for days at a time where you don't have any of the distractions of, uh, of being in town. You know, you're not looking for a parking space at the, <laughs> out front of the studio to make sure that you get to your session on time. You know, you're not worried about having to, Oh, like, are we, do we have to eat crappy fast food again today? Cause that's all there is in this neighborhood. You know, like mm. I do sort of like a, a host thing up here and take good care of my, my customers and feed them and, you know, dote on them. So they love the experience, you know, it makes it more, uh, makes it more than just, uh, Oh, we're going somewhere to record. It makes it a getaway. It makes an, uh, makes it an event, you know? And so that's worked out real well. And, and my clients have been really responsive to that. Very cool. I was going to ask you what makes your studio unique, but you really kind of answered that. Well, the location does, right? Like, I think... Also, though, what it makes it unique is me. <laughs> we all do things differently, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have our own sort of sound. And, and so that's part of it, too. It seems that... It seems that when people are searching for me, they are searching for a certain sound or a certain energy in their recording. Mm -hmm. And as long as I'm able to continue to give that to folks and they like it, I'll continue to keep doing that. But I definitely, you know, having a good mic collection, having a console mixing outside of the box, like that's, that's a big deal. You know, I've made great sounding records on next to no gear at all. So you, you can always find a way to do it, but the way I've got things set up here, the workflow is very streamlined. There's not a lot of BS involved. You know, it's very simple. I can do most of my sessions even without a, a second or an assistant on hand, you know, and, and we can move quickly. And that's another thing, right? People want results. Like, you know, gone are the days when we can say, oh, well, what are you working on today? Oh, we're working on drum sounds. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, th that's over. Like, if I don't have drum sounds up in an hour and a half, people are looking at me going like, what's going on? Why aren't we recording? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, and that's just, uh, that's just the way it is. So, you know, being organized, having a, a good, clean facility where you can find what you need, where maintenance is taken care of, where things operate, where nothing's broken. Like those are the things that make the session go smooth, you know, day in and day out and keep people in a good mood. But when downtime starts cropping up, uh, you know, or you're having system failures or stuff like that, like, yeah, people's patience, you know, and they're, they're paying for it. People's patience uh, gets short. Mm -hmm. So you really, you, you want to be on top of your game and you want to deliver the most that you can. And I've always worked really hard for my bands. I just think that the setup up here, allows me to continue that way and it makes people comfortable that and i also make a really good cup of coffee <laughs> nice i mean the, mo the mo <laughs> mo most crucial thing yeah 
oh my god yeah i was doing a i was doing a, uh, some vocals with kevin seconds from seven seconds from his last record i guess that was about a year a year ago he was driving down from sacramento i got up early was kind of cleaning up a little bit went to put on the coffee and i banged the carafe against the sink and broke it wow and i'm like oh my god the client's going to be here in an hour and I cannot make him a cup of coffee. <laughs> so I had to drive drive to the closest town, find a coffee pot, drive back and get coffee on. I just made it in time. So when he came through the door, I had a fresh pot on for no, him. That's really funny. <laughs> and he was he was appreciative appreciative of it. And Kevin really likes my cooking too. He always tells me, you know, uh, he's always like, oh my God, like your pizza's, he's a vegetarian, you know, mm-hmm. your pizza's the best. Your eggplant's the best. I don't eat anybody else's eggplant, but yours is the best. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That keeps them coming back. You wouldn't be too far off on that, you That's know. Funny. I th- I, th- I think that part of it really, like part of it, really is the hang. Mm. I agree. Yeah, I think that that is a big thing that people. And I, th- I think that's something I've gotten better at over the years. I think maybe when we were all a little younger, I was probably, you know, more of a stickler for just the ins and outs of the daily routine, whereas now I'm more like laissez-faire and you know we can we'll make it work we'll find a way to make it work the other thing too is you know the flexibility of digital kind of helps there back back in the in the day when we were making those 90s punk rock records that you were talking about Mm -hmm. you know everything was recorded on tape and i mean i would do plenty of editing you know i for most of those records i was running two tape machines i'd run a 16 track two inch for drums which i would then you know take a razor blade to and cut into time and then i would lock that to a 24 track machine you know i'd run the run the uh, run the the 16 track at 15 ips and then run the 24 track at 30 ips and record vocals guitars and etc onto the other machine and lock them together uh, so there wasn't a lot of room for error back then. You know, the errors you could fix, you'd have to fix it with a razor blade, you know, mm. which is, which is fine. You know, I, you know, done plenty of that and it's actually kind of enjoyable. Mm. <laughs> totally. uh, it just takes, just takes time. But now with the, with now with the flexibility of digital and editing, I think that in some cases you don't have to quite be such a stickler, you know, making people do stuff, you know, 10, 15, 20 times. Some people have the performance in them. Some people don't have the performance in them. Totally. Part of what I do is to help nurture great performances and help people break through bad habits that they've, you know, built up over the years. You know, whether that be, you know, mushy guitar picking or uh, whether that be, um, you know, a style of vocalizing, mm-hmm. you know, or whether that how that might be how you center your snare drum hits, you know, or your kick drum hits. But, you know, a lot of what I've done or do is is focused on getting a great performance. It's not to say that tone isn't important. Obviously, we're looking for the best sound that we can get at the time. And I will say this, I am, I am 100% certain from experience that crappy sounds uh, inspire crappy performances. Mm, I agree. And yep. th- that if you're not giving people what they need to hear, whether that be their mix in the control room, whether that be their headphone mix, headphone mix, super overlooked. Oh, yeah. You know, like a lot of guys will, you know, send stuff out to headphones Oh, you want a little bit of that? You want a little bit of this? Okay, no problem. Sometimes the drummer doesn't even know what he needs to hear in his mix. You know, like I spend time, I'll spend 10 minutes of time setting up the drummer's headphone mix myself. Yep. 
so that I feel that it's right. And usually when I give the headphones to the drummer and say, sit behind the kit, how does that sound? They go, oh my God, that yeah. sounds great. You know, I can hear everything. And just reducing it to, to like the fact that there's, n the less they have to concentrate on, the better. You know, yes. whether it's just a click and a scratch guitar and a scratch vocal, I'm fine with that. You know, when I'm, tra when I'm tracking drums myself, all I really want is like click and a scratch vocal, maybe like a hair of guitar so I can remember where the transitions are. But... Less is less is more. The more you got to concentrate on, man, the more people, uh, I've always said this, like the hardest thing in the world is to get four people to concentrate on the same thing for three minutes. Mm, that's a great saying. And it's, it's hard. And sometimes people have to be coached into it, you know, and coached into focusing. One of the biggest things I find with young bands, I go to these rehearsals and listen to the songs. Nobody's listening to one another. It's four different people playing four different songs. There's no visuals. There's no eye contact. People aren't aware of what their bandmates are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, these are lessons too that I try to impart. Mm -hmm. Those are lessons though, though. That bears results. That bears fruit. You know, mm -hmm. I don't care if we don't get the most perfect guitar sound. Cause guess what? Next week, somebody else is going to have a better guitar sound than you. Yes. Like it's not the point. The point is, capturing great energy capturing great performances on hopefully great songs <laughs> yeah no, that's a, a, a great point so so let's let's get with that so you're talking about how involved you like in trying to get a performance we have this saying on the podcast so like on one side of the scale you have steve albini who doesn't really get involved in the songwriting i'll just get you great tones and then you have a john feldman who totally will rewrite your songs yeah. where, where do you see yourself falling on that scale most often Probably three quarters to the way to John's side. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that a lot of times the writing and arrangements are thrown together. Things aren't thought through. Bands aren't thinking about form. You know, they think, oh, a song starts with a verse. Well, a song doesn't have to start with a verse. You know, I heard the Beatles started a lot of songs with choruses. Apparently it worked for them. You know, so there, these are things that you know, hopefully you're touching on them in pre-production, mm -hmm. you know, but if a part is not working, if a melody needs to be rewritten, I will, you know, help make that happen or, or force that to happen. If the song needs arrangement changes, I'll walk the band through it and I'll point to them and go, well, this is what's happening here. This is what's happening here. Something needs to happen here mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so what I find I end up doing is sort of making the argument for that presenting it to them and going, okay, guys, well, I'm not trying to step on what you're doing here, but there's a better way to put these pieces together that makes them sound more impactful, mm. you know? And uh, a, a lot of times bands, they just don't hear things that way, you know? And they don't understand that the reinvention has to happen with each verse part or each chorus part in pop music, you know, that you've got to be adding to it. So yeah, I definitely lean more towards the the co-writing and arranging side of things mm. on certain projects it's not necessary you know folks will come in and they'll go this is what we've got mm. I, I mean i remember back in the early 90s or mid 90s i did a lot of records for tooth and nail back mm. then and a lot of those were christian format artists yes and i had never done any christian industry work before it's kind of funny, actually. I was talking with Andy Calkin from Anti Records one day, mm. when, but this is before Anti existed, when he was still Brett's right hand man. Mm -hmm. And he's like, "Oh, what's going on at West Beach?" I said, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing this uh, 
OC Supertones band for Tooth and Nail. He's like, oh, Tooth and Nail, that's a Christian label, right? And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, we've been getting a few bookings from them. And he goes, oh, well, do they know that West Beach is owned by Satan? (laughs) Really good. (laughs) And I laughed and I said, hey, man. You know, it's all good. And it, 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 to, to me, the idea of being in Christian and Christian and punk rock was like, uh, it's even more punk rock than being punk rock, mm. <laughs> you know, T- talk about slamming two things together that you didn't think would fit. Yes. I, I, I'm, st- I'm still not convinced they have ever fit properly. I'm <laughs> yeah, sure. right. But one thing I'm going to say about those bands uh-huh. was they're incredibly organized. Mm. And when I'd worked with OC Supertones and like early versions of MXPX and Goaty Hook and Value Pack, a lot of those records that I did for Tooth and Nail back in that era, Slick Shoes, mm. these guys would come in and they already knew the sequence of the record. Yep. Oh, so Steve, do you want to record this, uh, you know, in the sequence as it will appear on the record? Oh, you mean you guys already have that worked out? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's taken care of. You know, like these guys would come in at a preparation level that I'd never seen before from regular punk rock bands. And I don't know whether it was because Tooth and Nail, you know, staunchly helped them through the development stage mm-hmm. or whether these folks were just a little bit more responsible. <laughs> yeah, this is a funny thing. We, um, on a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about this with like how much we see foreign bands be more prepared when they come over here. But we're also like, well... If you have the gumption to get over here to record with me and fly over an ocean, you're probably thinking a lot about your music. Yeah, absolutely. You're probably thinking about, you know, how much does uh, studio time cost and how much do hotels cost and what Mm -hmm. has to get done every day, you know? You know, most of the bands that I work with, I do a lot of baby band stuff Mm -hmm. these days. And, you know, I find that those acts definitely are more disorganized, maybe don't understand the industry as well as they should. And therefore need guidance. And so as a producer, you almost sort of end up offering input to other parts of their career. You know, like I've been working with an artist uh, these last couple of weeks, finishing up a project for them. And their drummer says, you know, well, how are we going to shop this to people? And I said, well, you know, you have an attorney, right? You have an entertainment attorney. And, And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, he's the guy to solicit for you and get folks to listen to the record once it's done and you know it was like the light went on oh that's what we do okay okay (laughs) um you know but as the industries become more fragmented more diy and everybody's kind of doing their own thing more and more and more the shared collective experiences of the business have gone to the wayside a little bit and so i do get a lot of questions from folks about that kind of thing, you know, or how does this work or how does that work or how does publishing work or, you know, I'm always happy to pass on this information. I'm hoping that this will help people avoid, you know, industry pitfalls that exist and also make, ensure that the project or product that we're working on reaches more people and is more popular and lets them spread the word. I like that. So, so tell me about what happens when you and a band disagree about something. Uh, well, <laughs> There's a couple of outcomes. I win, they win, or we both win. (laughs) Usually if I win, they're winning. They just don't know it. And, you know, I had to go through this, like, again, the same artist that I've been working with this last couple of weeks, you know, they want a lot of vocal doubling and verses, you know, and I'm like, well, it's hard enough to get dynamics going in your music anyhow. Mm -hmm. So let's double on the choruses and bridges and leave the verses alone. 
And so for that singer, she finds that, oh, it might sound a little bit bare bones to her. But to me, it sounds intimate and inviting. And it sounds like totally. you're asking me in to tell me the story of, you know, this, this song, you know, and she's got good songs and good stories. And, you know, I had to explain a few times, uh, look, there's a reason why we're doing this this way. You know, I try always to, to listen and try to get, I want the band to love their record. I want them to be happy with it. I want them to walk out going, oh, Steve helped us make the best record that we could for this sort of juncture in our career. And that's, all, that's always the goal. It doesn't always work out that way, uh, unfortunately. A lot of things can happen that, mm -hmm. that can interrupt that process. You know, the idea is that when these conflicts come up, if I feel strongly about it, I'm going to make my case and go, this is why I think that way. And then ask them, can you support that logic? You know, like, and a lot of times when I lay it out for folks and they listen and they understand, they go, oh my gosh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. We understand now why you want to do things this way. And in, in, there are certain cases though where folks will have like a hairball idea and you go, oh, man, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> and then you give it a try and you're like, oh, that works pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just like, you, you just never know. So I'm down to try that and try to, you know, expand. There's also the question of how many hours there are in a day and how much time are you going to spend on these I, flirting with ideas, you know, this is where pre-production mm -hmm. comes into it too. And coming up with, I used to, I used to work with this guy and he used to tell me, you know, Steve, a good idea is a developed idea. And that's stuck with me for 30 years. Mm. And I always try and think about that going into a record. What are we doing to develop these ideas? What are we doing to develop this into a well-rounded release? Mm -hmm. There's nothing worse than a samey record that sounds yes. form-wise, dynamics-wise, song construction-wise, sounds the beginning, sounds the same from beginning to end. Yeah, those records are really hard to listen to. <laughs> yeah. And in the punk rock genre, there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think if anything, that's actually like one of the biggest deaths of punk records is it's like, I got a good idea. Here's it 13 times. Yeah, that, 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 well, that's it, right? There's certain people that could get away with that, like the Ramones, mm. you know? Yes, well, but they kind of, you know, I, I have this theory that there's like that, that thing of like, that was the low hanging fruit and now you have to reach higher. <laughs> Well, you know, the Ramones are an interesting band, right? Because they, mm -hmm. they understood the 60s and they understood pop. There couldn't have been a Ramones without the Beach Boys. It just wouldn't have happened. Well, well yeah, more, more the Phil Spector stuff. Yeah, that's it, you know? And so, while they had a rudimentary sound and a way, their own way of constructing songs, they were able to color it over a full-length recording and make you go, okay, I'll buy that, you know? But there's plenty of punk rock bands out there. I'm not going to name names, but you know, there's a lot of huge bands out there that have been just treading water, putting the same thing out year oh, after yeah. year after year. And their fans buy it because that's the sound their fans want, but it sure is hard to listen to, you know, <laughs> for me, you know, yeah, for yeah. me, like, you know, um, well, but, but they're not expanding their fan base. They're just pleasing a, a set of people. Yeah, hey, uh, absolutely. And they have a huge fan base. 
and mm-hmm. that fan base wants those records. So there's, I'm just saying, it, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying that for me, I have a hard time listening to records that are made that way. And I would prefer not to make records that are made that way. I think one of the best like modern rock recordings of the last 10 years is that against me, uh, White Cross's record. It's a great record, that, yeah. That uh, Butch Vig did. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect example of taking a core sound, stretching it over 14 songs and making it hold together. Mm. And the vocals hold it together. The songs hold it together. The arrangements hold it together. It works on so many levels. You know, I think if I think back about a record, that's that as complete as that, mm. I probably got to go back to like the color and the shape. Wow. You know, which is another album that is just from beginning to end. It seamlessly works. And it takes you on a trip, you know? And those are both two records made by pretty good producers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, can, you can say that. So I'm, so I'm, I'm, so I'm going to go with, uh, let's keep mixing it up for 500, Alex. Nice. I just think it's important in a genre that has been sort of handcuffed in some ways. You know, and as we mm-hmm. were talking, you know, before we started this segment, we were talking about how broad the scope of modern music has become. I think that's helped too, to broaden writers' horizons and to make people realize, hey, dude, you don't have to do 14 songs of the same thing. There's plenty of opportunity to spread yourself around and keep a core sound that maintains identity and is exciting, but it's hard work mm-hmm. and it takes time. And songs have to get rewritten and rewritten again. And mm-hmm. performances have to be re-recorded and re-recorded again if you want to make timeless records like that. Some people have the patience for it and some people don't. Mm. And I think that, you know, artists that are looking at the sky and going, I can, I'm going to reach as high as I can, you know, more often or not are going to make the more interesting record. Mm-hmm. Than somebody that goes, oh, I love that Rancid record. Let's go. I want to make a record <laughs> just like that. The idea is that you have to try to outdo do the people you respect, not imitate the people you respect. I- exactly. And unfortunately, there's a lot of imitating out there. And it is really hard. And great artists are few and far between. And great songwriters mm-hmm. are few and far between. And I think if we look at the legacy acts that mm-hmm. continue to perform, Descendants, Bad Religion, those are two names that come to mind right off the bat. Well, mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about a couple of bands that put a huge focus on songwriting throughout their careers, you know? And, yeah, and, absolutely. And have been rewarded over time with, with audience support because of that, you know? And, 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 and as producers, it really is part of our job to impart those wisdoms that we've learned over the years and help the next generation or folks that are just starting to make records for the first time, help them understand how important all those ingredients are to making a record that stands the test of time. You know, if it was, I always tell people too, like the easiest thing is making records, you know, throw a band in the studio and press record. Well, we can have a record in eight hours if we want to. But again, getting back to that, a good idea is a developed idea, thought process, gives it pause, you know, and I always, I don't, I don't ever want to go into a project without pre-production, without having Mm -hmm. a chance to review 
the material, even if it costs me some of my time, mm -hmm. it's worth it. It's worth it because when I get the band into the studio, we aren't all standing around looking at one another going, what happens first? If I've, had, <laughs> if I've had a couple of days of rehearsal, I can make a game plan and I can decide, guys, we're going to do X, Y, Z and it's going to work and this is going to get us moved along. And as long as you're confident in it, confident in it then your client is going to follow that, you know, that, is going to follow your advice and you're going to get stuff done. You know, and that's the other part of it too, right? Is getting stuff done. Budgets aren't big anymore. We don't have a lot of time to make, to, you know, postulate about decisions. We need a decision now and we need to move on and get more stuff done. And without, you know, some sort of pre-production in hand, it just becomes so difficult to do things in a, in a timely manner. And it's, it's just one of those necessities, you know, for me. And, uh, I just always feel like going into something I'm better prepared and I can do a lot more for my client if I come in with a game plan, you know, and they, and, and, the, and they're expecting that from me, right. That they want that from me. They want to know that, okay, yeah, we have a schedule and we have a plan and this is what's going to get done. And, you know, as long as we easy does it, but do it, uh, kind of thing, we'll get to the end of the, we'll get to the end of the road. You know, I worked with Garth Richardson once, assisting him, mm. uh, assisting him on a on a Voodoo Glow Skulls record. Okay, and uh, we had a ball together. You know, we're both Canadian-born guys who've done a lot of work down here in the states, and mm. and Garth is uh, is one of those yes, yeah, great guy, yeah, absolutely. And he's one of those guys that says, you know, hey, okay, we're making a record. Well, I'm going this direction, guys. So fall in line behind me, and we're going to get there. And if we're mm. and if we're at the finish line. And we're not sure how we're going to get across. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to carry you across the finish line. You know, like that's his philosophy. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get this record done, you know, and get it turned in on time and on budget, you know? And yeah, like some people, some artists might have a hard time with that. But I tell you, when the job's done and it's turned in and everything's on budget and it's on time, a lot of people are happy and good things happen. You know, <laughs> and, and, and some, true. some, some of the, especially these days when there's no room to go over, but well, that's it. Exactly. Right. Just coming back to a good idea is a de developed idea again, you know, pre-production is your biggest tool, managing time, managing people, managing mm. personalities are all part of the game, you know? It's like, I, I, I sort of like the joke. It's only a half joke. You know, sometimes if you've been kind of pushing one person in the group a certain way on something, or you're subtly trying to make a change, you know, I always like that joke. Well, I'm producing you right now and you don't even know it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's kind of the part of the trick too, right? Mm. Is, is like not, and it's part of that hang thing too. It's not even sort mm. of seeming like it's happening. It's just happening. It's all part of this fluid process. And then it's sort mm -hmm. of like timeless and it's sort of easier and uh, you have a flow. You, you have a workflow. And if you've got a workflow and people get comfortable with that flow, then over a period of a week or whatever it is, as you're doing these things, people fall in line and they get, you know, they're on time and they show up on time and and they're excited to come to work, you know? It's a positive experience. Nobody wants to come to record a record and have it like pulling teeth, right? <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> you that know? is definitely the case. We, we call it playing music, <laughs> you know? Uh, at the same time, we call it the music business. So I guess there's yes. two, two sides of it that we have well, to hey, take we there. Don't, 
We no longer call it the music industry for a reason. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> there isn't one. Yes. So, so let's get into a little bit more personal stuff with you. So, sure. Do you have a worst one and what you learned from it? Uh, the worst one I do remember was this crazy session with this band uh, at West Beach when I just first started out, and the drummer. Oh, uh, I'm not going to name them. It doesn't matter. They never made it. Nobody signed them. Mm-hmm. The drummer was an epileptic who decided it would be a good idea to go off his medication during the studio. Oh, wow. And so the guy had fits and couldn't play the songs, and it was a disaster. The singer couldn't sing in time, and he wouldn't listen to what was coming through the headphones. So he would sing the songs. He would sing them so fast that he would be finished with the song, and the band would still have 30 seconds to go. (laughs) I I had to... actually go in and sing the guy's entire record for him so he could hear where the timing felt and then have him sing along to my scratch vocals. Wow. Like that was the only way I could get vocals recorded on the record because he couldn't listen to the drums. He couldn't listen to the time. He couldn't find his way through the songs. Like, so that was gnarly. Like those are, you know. That's insane. That's, that's (laughs) totally, that's, that's insane. But these are some of the things that have happened over the years, you know. I think one of the best moments, and this is kind of selfish, but I'm working on a solo record right now. Oh, nice. It's sort of like a power pop thing. Matthew Sweet, uh, Bob Mould, Sugar. Cool. Elvis Costello. Those are great influences. Teenage Fan Club. Those are some of my Mm. influences that are, Neil Young, those are some of my influences that are going into this recording. And I'll tell you something, piecing together my own songs after working on them, uh, working, Mm. like piecing them together and recording those and putting vocals and performances on those has got to have been one of the most recording, uh, uh, um, rewarding experiences after Mm. working on other people's stuff for my whole life. Mm. You know, um, and I, I play and sing on many of the recordings that I've done, but working on this project for me has taught me a lot about myself, a lot about my patience, and it's taught me a lot about my abilities and it's making me uh, more confident as a musician. And I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. I think one of the biggest moments of my professional career, uh, happened at a Los Angeles Kings game and I had gone, I, I got season's tickets like the last year that Gretzky played here, like in 95 or whatever it was, uh, or 96, I forget. Anyhow, I went to a game and the MXPX Life in General record had just started blowing up, but we didn't really know how big it had started to blow up. And so I'm sitting at the game, watching the game with friends and between plays, they do a commercial break and the video for Chick Magnet came on the Jumbotron. Oh my God. At, at, this was before Staples. This was at the Forum, the old Los Angeles Forum. Mm. And this video, the music video comes up and starts playing at the hockey game that I'm at. And I sort of realized at that moment, whoa, this record's going to get a lot bigger than you think it's going to get. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. And I still really like that record a lot. It was done totally done in under a month, about 26 or 28 days. And the band had already recorded it once and we were doing a re-recording of the whole thing. So oh, wow. there was a lot of pre-production. That so what there. had gone wrong with the recording I, previously? I guess they just felt like it hadn't worked out the way they wanted to. It sounded like Poconaccia and it sounded like teenage politics, like too much. Mm. And they felt like with Move to Bremerton, the label felt like they had a real bona fide single. 
plenty of effort was put into making Move to Bremerton the single. A lot of attention was paid to how that track went together, how the vocals went together. Chick Magnet came together on the very last day. Michael had to catch a plane back to Bremerton. And Chick Magnet was sort of a fun song that was an afterthought. And even in the sequence, if you look at that record, it's it's like in the nine hole or something like huh. that, or in the ten hole yeah, very, on that very record. Very rare for a single. Exactly. But and Mike, poor Michael had no voice left. I mean, I can remember him out in the out in the studio taking a one of those little honey bears. Uh-huh. And squeezing the whole thing down his throat to coat his throat, so we, which, which is basically the uh, the move for a singer who's desperate and is doing something that doesn't help at all. That, that's <laughs> it. That's it. You know. And Mike is a great singer. Mm-hmm. In fact, Mike Carrera may be one of the most naturally talented self-taught singers I've ever worked with. He has great enunciation. He has great placement. He's got great tone and he's got great pitch and he has emotion, but he's also a great lyricist and that helps, right? He's, he believes what he's singing. Anyhow, that day we somehow stumbled through recording vocals for Chick Magnet. We didn't even have time to get the finger pops and the hand claps on it. I did that with Tony Palermo, who was playing in 10 foot pole at the time. Tony plays in uh, Papa Roach now, his drummer in Papa Roach. I had him come over and help me with the finger pops. (laughs) <laughs> poor Tony <laughs> he was rushing so much <laughs> I, mean, I, I had to rush along on the finger pops with him and then actually delay those tracks back through oh, through a funny. delay to put him in time but but we got that song done and it was sort of an afterthought from that record and the next thing you know I'm at a hockey game and that's the song they've made the video for and that's the song they're pushing as the single and we just got through it by the skin of our teeth but something happened on that recording that make made that record and that song stand out on that record. And so lo and behold, move to Bremerton that was queued up as the, as the we're pushing, this as the number one single. All of a went, all of a sudden went to the two slot huh. and, and they went with chick magnet and uh, it hit at K rock and hit everywhere else. And the next thing you know, we sold like 400,000 of those, you know, it's a, it was a good selling record and that helped a lot of uh, that helped a lot launch a lot of opportunities for that band. You know, they were able to, take with that product they were able to go from playing in church basements to playing sold out shows at clubs you know it was a huge huge gear shifter in their career and i'm always will forever be proud of the fact that they trusted me to get that record done with them and that we got out of it for them what they needed which was to to go next level very cool so so let's get into your musical taste before we uh, have to wrap up what's a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect I really like that White Crosses record. I think that the melodies are incredibly strong. I think the lyrical subject is incredibly strong. You better have good lyrics, man. Like that is the bottom line. That's the bottom line to the whole game. If you can't, if you've got nothing to say to me, I don't want to listen to it. You know, and you could be talking about a relationship. You could be talking about politics. You could be talking about a hot dog you had yesterday for lunch. But if you can make me interested in it, you've got my ear. There's not a time that I listen to White Crosses and I don't feel emotionally catapulted through all of those songs. I love the vocal delivery on that record. I love the in-your-face quality of that record. I love the backup vocals on that record. It works in, in so many ways. As a, as a recent recording, well, it's not that recent anymore, right? That record's probably a five-year-old record now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say about so. But you know, I haven't heard much that's come along since that record that tops it. 
And that's just me too, like living in a market in LA where we've got a station like K-Rock, which is now a dance station, right? So, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they play dance music pretty much all the time. That's, But that's sort of where things are going too, right? Yeah, no, it's totally true. You know, and I, I'm not neither here nor there on it, whatever. I've never been a big programmer. I'm not really that guy. There are things like, uh, like Phoenix, that's a programmed record. That yeah. Phoenix record. Well, I, I mean, that's a great record. You know, I I love that bit, but that's a, that's drums and cymbals separately. Yeah, yeah. There you go. The, 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 I've watched the making of those records. They always do that. Yeah, that's and you know that's that's sort of a way. Like I do a lot of my drums still live. I'll do some tom overdubs mm-hmm. from time to time. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, that's you know that's the way you break down that sound. You know, mm-hmm. certain records are made certain ways. People don't realize that. You know, like. All of those Aussie records, those metal records, right? Those mm-hmm. are guitar first records. Oh yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a click laid, and then there's a, a finished guitar performance laid, and then that's doubled with the guy wearing headphones, mm-hmm. and then the drummer comes in and plays to that. Yeah, you know things are different that way around. Me, I start with drums, a click, and a scratch vocal and scratch guitar. Then it's guitar, mm-hmm. bass is last. You yep. know, that's the way, Same. that's the way I work, you know? So everybody's has got their way. Anyhow, but getting back to those, you know, records yep. that I feel real strongly about, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm well, real so st- my next, my next question is going to be, tell me about five of your favorite records in your musical growth. So please tell me about, please tell me about records that you enjoy. Oh man. Let's go right back to the beginning. Like DOA's hardcore 81. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, probably. I haven't thought about that record in forever. Probably one of the most powerful recordings of its era. Mm-hmm. Uh, lit the fire for the dead Kennedys, for the bad brains, uh, you know, which in turn lit the fire for the crossover into speed punk and speed metal, into Metallica, DRI, you know, the suicidal crossover record. Hardcore 81 by DOA is probably one of the most formative and important punk rock records ever made. And I think the whole thing clocks in at about 25 minutes in length. And that should tell you something right there. But the way that record is made, the energy that it has, and the drive that it provided to the North American scene can never, can't be underestimated. Uh, The Clash, London Calling, Mm -hmm. probably one of the greatest records ever made by one of the greatest bands ever. Uh, yes, that's my favorite as, record of all time. As far as I'm concerned, uh, it holds up after, you know, 35 years. The single of that record, Train in Vain, it's not mm-hmm. even on the album cover. It isn't even credited on the album cover. You know, <laughs> uh, it was an afterthought. It doesn't need to be. It was, af- it was an afterthought. But so he, now, how did they do that? How did they convince radio in 1979 to start playing a single that wasn't even listed on the album jacket? Mm. something something was going on there right because we know how fussy radio was back then mm-hmm. but uh that, that's a great great recording sandinist is also a good one but i'll mm-hmm. give it to london calling because it's a little tighter uh and a little less, not, little not, yeah, less not as much filler yeah a little less meandering i don't find a lot of the stuff on Sandinista to be filler i find it to be mm. uh sort of audio departures uh kind mm. of thing we're taking you on a trip for a little bit and then we're going to rein you in and bring you back uh kind mm. of thing i absolutely love teenage fan clubs uh, songs from uh northern britain mm-hmm. probably uh, that and grand prix those two probably two of the best pop rock guitar records ever made vocals are outstanding guitar parts are outstanding background vocals outstanding lyrics outstanding just on all 
you know, and I like that better than I like people will talk about the 13 record. They'll talk about the bandwagon esque mm-hmm. record. For me, it wasn't yeah. until later on that those guys really figured out the how much power they held in their hands and how to apply it properly. Mm. But those are very strong records for me. Out of the early LA stuff, Angry Samoans will always be one of my favorite LA bands because they had a sense of humor. They didn't take they didn't <laughs> they take didn't. themselves too seriously. And to me that the irreverence that they had in their in their music really stuck with me more than the DKs, more than Black Flag, who I enjoy Black Flag in passing here and there, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to sit down and listen to damage side to side and expect to totally. learn and expect to learn anything from it, you know? Black Flag became a huge band because they toured their asses off and they had you know sst which was owned by greg they they had the things in their pocket that were the right things and they grew it you know but if you go back and listen to those records there's not a lot of growth between those records you know i mean and also like 80 percent of the material is terrible after yeah, the first yeah, three records yeah, that's it that's it you know i think that slip it in records got a couple of good songs on it. my war maybe has a couple of good mm-hmm. songs on it. but at that point they were so concentrated on just cranking out another record to get on another tour you know mm-hmm. they were a, a real good example of what a working band could be if they you mm-hmm. know what they wanted to tour every year and put a record out every year but it's not something that i'm going to sit there and you know listen to neil young's uh crazy horse record mm-hmm. ragged glory great record from the 90s that i still go back and listen to and go holy mackerel you guys are so powerful <laughs> as a as a four-piece rock band i still can't mm-hmm. can't get over how huge uh some of that record sounds so yeah those are some of the things that have really stuck with me over the years i i do like the pop stuff i'm a huge matthew sweet fan i mm-hmm. love 100 percent fun as a record i love girlfriend yeah, i love uh altered beast i love girlfriend those are all fantastic records that have some of the best players in the business like greg lease you know playing guitar on them um they're they're nobody's really going to cite them as fantastically produced records but man they work you know and they get his mm-hmm. songs matthew's songs or vehicles working real real well i've always come from the pop side of thing i grew up listening mm-hmm. to radio as a kid I was pulled into punk rock music because there were opportunities there. You were allowed to do things yourself. You were allowed to make mistakes. So it was a perfect platform for me. But in my career, I've always been trying to make the perfect pop pop record that will go to radio because those are the records that I grew up with as a kid, you know, if that, Mm. if, if that makes sense. So I think that's kind of been my, my goal, you know, has always been my goal is to make that, that, that huge record. Like, I listen to the old Roxy music records and just oh, well, that stuff. thrill on the production of, 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 of those records. You know, mm-hmm. there's plenty of, of, of great sounding records. The Peter Gabriel, so record, you know, like if you set out to mm-hmm. make a great sounding record, yeah, that's the record you want to make, you know? And I guess I've always been trying to blend that hi-fi thing with the punk rock energy. And maybe that's why people say that I have my own sound or I have a sound. I'm not sure I would say that, but folks that come to work with me say it so they must know something that i don't know i don't know (laughs) (laughs) but they always say well steve you have a sound you know and there is radio gloss in my sound and there is uh, uh um 
a hierarchy to my mixes, you know, the vocals are there. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of things that I worked on were easily adaptable to radio because they were mixed for that. And they were mixed with vocals right up front, the way, vo the way radio wants to hear them, you know, like even on that, uh, even on the slowly going the way of the Buffalo record, the MXPX record that I did, which went gold. Like if you listen to that record, Mike's vocals are kind of tucked a lot on that record. Mm. It's not a blaringly, obvious like out there uh mix but i'm okay you're okay the single which you know we pushed to radio his vocals is more up on that on that song we didn't want to make a, a super we wanted that record to their major label debut record to we wanted you to have to work for it a little bit to listen into it a little bit to pull a little closer to it we didn't want to come out and give you all the gloss you know and go okay this band has changed labels so now we're shifting gears on their sound completely yeah, yeah. you know we just felt that that would be a huge huge mistake and i think that, that, that was a very big consideration back then and now it's just like oh yeah, yeah. Do now I mean, does anybody know does anybody notice that we're on a different yeah, label that's right absolutely but for the, for us then it was a yeah. really big concern oh yeah larry weintraub I mean, that worked a and r for that record for a and m was involved at every level, every level of that recording. He came to pre-productions in, flew to pre-productions in Seattle. His office wow. was around the corner from the A room at A&M where I mixed that record. I would take meetings with him during the mixes of those records. We'd talk about where we were going with that record. You know, that's that is rare. It's extremely rare, but it's a, it's a testament to Larry and how mm. well he understood the needs of MXPX uh, going to A&M and that he was committed to try and do everything they could to make it a comfortable transition and to have a successful first release. It was one of his first releases as an A&R rep. Like, he didn't want that record to fall on his face, and none of us did either. We wanted to give it every chance we could, you know? So, mm. so it's not to say that we overthought it. I, I will think, I do think we overthought that record a little bit. If I could have it back, maybe I would remix it and pump Mike's vocals up a little bit on some of those songs, but on some of those songs, it sits real good too, you know? So, mm. I don't know, man. And people really like that record. I will say this. We succeeded in the fact that we were able to make it a next level record again for that band. And we did go to another level and another level of sales and recognition for them. We didn't take yeah. a step back. So in that sense, all of that discussion and all of that developing of the ideas made sense and it was the right thing to do and and, and at that uh show me a time that somebody revisits a record that was pretty successful in any way and tries to improve upon it and it actually works yeah like never right yeah i, I mean it's funny like i like a few I, I like a few records like that but i like them because i'm a hi-fi nerd who wants to listen to something new on headphones i don't know that they, the record actually works better years later revisiting it yeah i think sometimes these things are just messages in bottles that we send out you know like we spend our time crafting them like make sure the calligraphy looks good make sure the cork is in the top of the bottle tight and then throw it into the ocean and see what happens and sometimes things that you think are going to happen aren't the things that you're going to happen whether that be commercial success positive and negative or whether it's artistic success positive or negative you know obviously we're always trying to you know better ourselves and have a record that's got great commercial success but part of what we're doing is growing as our artists and growing mm. as songwriters and song constructors and growing as storytellers. And I always try to stress the fact that part of making a record is about personal growth. And if you're not getting personal growth out of it, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you are not going to get the results that you're looking for. Great art is about truth. 
And I think that any painter, sculpture, or, you know, composer will tell you that. You know, you're mm -hmm. trying to tell stories and you're trying to tell the truth. And when you're telling the truth, it's empowering and it's, it's, it's a big deal. And so I find that keeping focused on those little ideas sort of tend to help everything around it kind of go smoothly. And you're keeping your goals in the right place. And if you do that, everything else sort of has a way of working out and taking care of itself, I think. I am right there with you. That's actually a lot of what my new book's about. So with that, we got five minutes left. So I want you to tell me what you've been working on. Sure. I just wrapped up uh, or in the process of mixing a band that I've been tracking for an LA baby band called Here Kitty Kitty. Mm -hmm. um, Here Kitty Kitty is been on the scene in LA for a number of years, but they've sort of been honing their sound and shopping a sound and we've got something for them now that is working female fronted but it's fortunately we don't have to make the paramore comparison it's sort of its own thing and it's a little bit more on the rock side than the pop punk side which i think r works real well and uh, those songs have come together super quick and i'm very happy with that record it'll be wrapped up in the next couple of weeks i also just had a record drop last week from uh, an alternative country artist based out of montreal the band's called three o'clock train and mm. we did a four song EP, interestingly, interestingly enough, that revisits four of the band's best songs. They had a huge alt-country career in the 80s and 90s. Their singer-songwriter, Mac McKenzie's relaunching. I was able to cho choose four of what I thought were f you know, four of their best songs and recreate them from scratch. And hmm. that has been an actually incredible experience. And I can definitely say in this case, they all turned out better than the originals. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty cool. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I just also finished wrapping up a mix for a group out of uh, Paris, France called uh, Louis Ling and the Bombs. And I'm super stoked on that record. Uh, they're kind of trying to blend American punk rock with an electronic prodigy sound. And mm. it's also got female vocal in it. And uh, it was a blast. They sent me tracks to mix and I'm getting like tracks with tunes with like 80 tracks of audio. <laughs> so yeah. I was pulling my hair out, but I'm so happy with the way that it turned out. It sounds absolutely slamming. We got great mixes that drive the electronics and the guitars and real drums all together. And the vocals are spitting and love the lyrics. They're just all over the place. And it was a really, really fun record to work on. I had mixed a record for them a few years ago and they came back to me to have to do another one. So I was super, super happy with the way that worked out. And then the other project I'm working on is my record. My artist name is Stephen Brad, Stephen Bradley, for those who want to know. And the uh, release will be called Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. It's a power pop outing. And uh, it'll be coming out on my label uh, this fall, uh, which is Porterhouse Records, if anybody wants to know. And if anybody wants to check out my record label, that's always a good thing to do to www.porterhouserecords.com. I do a lot of vinyl reissues. Uh, I reissue, reissue the X catalog, who are oh, no LA's greatest punk rock band of all time. Yes, I also sir. have the first Gun Club record, Fire of Love, on my label. And uh, we're adding more stuff all the time. Just ch just signed uh, Chip Kinman, who was in the Dills and Rank and File, two of my favorite West Coast bands. And uh, mm. he's got a band now called Ford Maddox Ford, named after the British author. And uh, they've got a seven inch out on my label. 
So go check that out. It's punkified blues, electrified blues. Very, very cool. So nice. I always got something going over on the label side. There's always some janky production going on up here at Hell's Half Acre Studio. And so check us out there if you can. My website, stevecravac.com. Always trying to post stuff there for uh, folks so they can see what I'm working on. And there's email connection there too. So you can always jump on, ask me to send you an estimate if you want a song mixed or a couple of tracks recorded. Or you can always reach out through noise creators who I partner yes. with and who are wonderful people doing a great job and doing something that should have happened a long time ago on a platform that I think should have happened a long time ago. I'm super excited for you guys and super excited for the possibilities of connecting producers with artists. And I think it's the way going forward. I think you guys have struck on something really, really important here. And I think that the, Thanks so much. Uh, I know I, I do believe in this concept. I honestly do. And as, as a guy who has had representation from larger production management and engineering firms in the past, to me, this just seems like a way better platform, um, mm. a way more user-friendly platform and a way quicker uh, process of connecting producers with artists and vice versa. And um, super excited to be a part Part of it and glad that uh, you guys uh, brought me on well thanks so much dude this was uh, a really really great episode we're gonna have to have you come back uh, later in the year to answer all the questions i skipped for uh time not a problem but, i would love to come but, uh, on and do this dude, with dude, you it was, again, it was actually really great great here some of these points of view uh it, it one reaffirms everything i'm writing about all day while, while i write this book on creativity and uh Hearing somebody else saying some of the things that I, I think about all day was really, really cool. And uh, as well, well, uh, it's really, really cool getting to know you. It's absolutely to you too, Jesse. And I wanted to thank you so much for taking this opportunity to to make this happen. Um, mm. uh, you know, obviously, this is just one man's opinion. Um, and uh, people are going to have divergent ideas about how things should be done. I've come up with a system over the years that works for me and it seems to work for my clients. And so I'm, I'm sticking with it. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> nice. And, and, you know, I'll make changes as, as need be, but man, if it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 